Okay, Jesse, last week's dirtbag doctor still has me all fired up. What's the story this time around? A shooting death is classified as an accident and the case is closed until the victim's ex-wife and family shed some light on some curious exploits of the man's current wife. When the cops investigate, they find out that this might not be the woman's first murder rodeo. I'm Andy Cassette. And I'm Jesse Prey, and this is Love Murder. Hi, Andy. Hey, Jesse. Welcome back, everyone, to Love Murder, a podcast about horrible crimes, unbelievable alibis, and love gone fatally wrong. And apparently murder rodeos. <laughs> always. There's always a murder rodeo going on at Love Murder. <laughs> you can find Love Murder on Twitter and Instagram at Love Murder Pod and on Facebook by searching Love Murder Podcast. If you enjoy this show, please, please, please love slash murder a five-star rating on your podcast app, subscribe and review to help new people discover the show. And as always, thank you guys so much for your wonderful reviews. It really means the world to us. It helps us go up the charts and it helps other people find us. So we really appreciate it. And if you have left a review and you haven't gotten a sticker, send us a DM or message us at lovers at lovemurder.love and we will be happy to hook you up. Okay, Andy, let's jump right into the story, shall we? Yes. On a February winter's day in 1988 in Durham, North Carolina, a woman named Jolyn was on a mission that involved her ex-husband. Now, usually on our show, the words ex-husband and mission lead to some pretty homicidal stories. However, Jolyn was doing quite the opposite. She, in fact, was hounding the police to get justice for her ex, a man named Russ Steger. Russ had been accidentally shot by his current wife, Barbara, and the police had quickly ruled out foul play. In <laughs> Wait, what? Yeah, it seems pretty wild to me, too. Shot by did... his current wife. Yes, it was supposedly an accidental shooting, which does happen when you have firearms in the house that don't have their safeties on. Oh, my God. So, in fact, on the day that JoLynn finally got an audience with Sergeant Rick Buchanan after she had placed several frantic phone calls, he had already been quoted in the Durham morning paper assuring the public that the popular high school coach's death scene showed no struggle nor foul play. It was just simply a terrible accident. But Joe Lynn and apparently Andy know better. <laughs> After getting a meeting time with Buchanan, Joe Lynn wrote down an introduction and laid out what she wanted to say. She was grieving, angry, and flustered. She wanted her words on paper so she wouldn't leave anything out. Every detail mattered, she knew. Sergeant Buchanan was welcoming, but not entirely interested in what the jilted first wife had to say. He had been on the scene. The evidence was consistent with Barbara Steger's story. He indulged her with a smile and began to read the letter she offered him. After a brief introduction, Joe Lynn wrote that Russ had feared for his life, that Barbara and Russ had monetary issues caused by Barbara's debts and lies. In fact, Barbara lied about everything. 
She lied about money, her employment status, her infidelity. She was almost certainly lying to the police about what happened on the early morning of Russ's death. Furthermore, Russ was in the Army Reserves as well as the National Guard and had even taught a class on gun safety. There's no way he could have died in the way that Barbara described. Worst of all, JoLynn wrote, Russell had feared for his safety. Russ no longer believed that her first husband's wound, JoLynn wrote, was accidental. So Buchanan stopped reading at this point, and he's trying not to show his surprise. He's like, uh, excuse me, a first husband? A wound? So he read on. She wrote, he too died from a gunshot wound, and Barbara was the only person with him. Russell always said that if anything suspicious happened to him, that he would want me to remember his telling me that. So now Buchanan's eyebrows are raised. Barbara Steger had another husband who had died of an accidental gunshot wound. What were the odds of that? Indeed, Sergeant Buchanan, the odds seem pretty darn slim. So to set JoLynn's mind at ease, as well as those of Russ's family, he decided to dig a little deeper into the accidental death and what he would find would be a boggling tale of money, affairs, life insurance, and some truly bizarre lies. The first thing Sergeant Buchanan did was to begin to dig into the life story of one Barbara Terry Ford Steger. And that's where I think we should start as well. Barb was born Barbara Terry on October 30th, 1948, to young newlyweds, 20-year-old Marva and 22-year-old James Terry. Barbara was the first of three children and the only daughter. She was shy and studious and a little bit of a wallflower. Barbara was physically small and she required very thick glasses to see. When she grows up, she kind of looks like SNL bridesmaids. Uh, what's her name? Kristen Wiig. Yes. Yeah. So she has like kind of that vibe, only very short, but she's like thin. She's tiny. When she was growing up, she wore these like big Coke bottle glasses. Later on, she does get contacts. Very 80s though. Yes. It's very like late 70s, 80s, that look. How's her hair? Um, it's actually like kind of unremarkable for you're talking 70s and 80s. You think that there would be some, uh, <laughs> some poof happening in volume. Yeah, it's more like almost like the, the page boy kind of situation, like, like a bob. So yeah, so she was raised by devout Baptists and appearances were very important to especially her mother, Marva. So Barbara was raised to stand up straight, keep her nose clean and excel. As such, she didn't drink, smoke, act out, or engage in any premarital sex. She was in the Future Teachers of America organization, and she eventually graduated 33rd in her class of 233, earning herself a scholarship to Appalachian State Teachers College in Boone, North Carolina. Barbara's roommate, Laura, and her new boyfriend, Steve, introduced her to Steve's roommate, Larry Ford, and the two hit it off shockingly fast. So Larry was one of five children born to Doris and Henry Ford of Colfax, North Carolina. Even as a young child, Larry was so kind and thoughtful. His teacher's remarks on his report cards noted an outstanding student who got along well with others and was exceptionally polite. So this set of traits continued into early adulthood and senior year, he was even voted by his class to be most dependable. Oh, wow. 
Mm-hmm. That's like one that you would get that you'd be like, that's not that sexy, but like it's good for the long run. Like it ages. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, exactly. That's like you, you maybe in high school, you're like, I don't necessarily want to date like Mr. Most Dependable, but you get a little older and you're like, where the hell is Mr. Most Dependable now? <laughs> Hottie McHot Pants over here is a real loser. Exactly. <laughs> So Larry was just a doll and he also had a desire to teach. It was like really noble. He wanted to help kids, you know? So he also went to Appalachian State Teachers College, which is where he met Steve, his roommate, and then Steve's girlfriend's roommate, Barbara. Both Barb and Larry came from fairly conservative homes. So it probably came as a bit of a shock for them both when they had sex on their very first date in the instruments closet of the campus band room. Okay, that's kind of hot. That's really hot. I mean, you had to, <laughs> you couldn't even wait till you got home. You had to do it in the, the band room, the instruments also, closet. Was it both of their first time? I, I'm pretty sure, yes. Wow, that would be like so intense. Very, very intense. Also, like, so are you standing up for your first time? Like, I don't know. Okay, also, guys, they didn't say explicitly whether they were virgins or not, but I'm kind of assuming so because they both seemed like really, like, good kids. Mm. (laughs) (laughs) You know how those good kids are. Especially those band kids. If American Pie taught us anything, it's that band kids are freaks. (laughs) Um, So all of my information for the most part today comes from a wonderful book called Before He Wakes by Jerry Bledsoe. I also took some information from an August 30th, 2020 Medium post by Lori Johnston called Barb Steger, Killing for Money. So if there was any mystery about this case, it is ruined by my references. I'm sorry, guys. (laughs) Reference ruiner. Reference. I have to start giving them at the end, man. So... That happened, and I think it surprised Larry a little bit. Like, obviously, at the beginning, he was very much into this, but Barb was very intense. Like, she was intense sexually. She was, like, overwhelmingly affectionate, like, very PDA-heavy, which he wasn't really used to. And she really wanted to, like, be hot and heavy, serious, like, talk about marriage almost right away, and they're super young, you know? So, I mean, they already banged, though. Why is he going to wait till marriage now? He I know. Need to rush well, to get married. Exactly. I mean, she she what gave away the milk here? Yeah, yeah. So he wants to pump the brakes on this relationship that's getting a little too intense for him right away. And after only a couple months of dating, Barb's roommate Laura came home and found Barbara basically catatonic. She was on her bed. She wouldn't speak. She was moaning like an animal, but like she, and she was like kept like flailing on her bed. And so Laura kept trying to get her to tell her what was wrong, what was going on. Was she physically in pain? What was happening? And it was like, she was talking to somebody who wasn't there. Like Barbara wouldn't speak, wouldn't acknowledge her, wouldn't even acknowledge her presence. So of course, Barbara's terrified and confused. So she notified the dorm mother who also tried to come and like calm Barbara down. And when she wasn't able to, she called campus security who also could not get Barbara to respond to her even a little bit. So they called the police and eventually the police just take her to a hospital where she was sedated and kept overnight. So there was nothing physically wrong with Barbara. The next day, she seemed recovered, 
And it seemed like it had been some sort of emotional episode, but she wouldn't tell anyone what had caused the emotional episode. So Steve and Larry picked Barbara up from the hospital. And though Barbara didn't tell Laura what had happened, Larry later told Steve that he had tried to break things off with Barbara and that had caused her breakdown. Like she went into a full emotional breakdown about it. So she had a very intense reaction to rejection. And how old was she? At this point, she's like 18, 19. So he felt pretty guilty about the whole emotional breakdown thing. So he actually took her back after the incident at the hospitalization. A good move. No, I also think it's kind of like what we talked about before when you are in a new relationship and you are just trying to pump the brakes. Like even last episode and somebody says they're going to commit suicide if you leave them. Yeah. You know, it seems very manipulative. Is this Larry first husband, Larry? Uh-huh. Because he took her back. And after only a couple weeks of them being reunited, she told him that she was pregnant. Mm-hmm. Suspicious timing. She decided she was never going to give him the chance to break up with her again, huh? So the two were married in a small and quiet ceremony on May 21st, 1968, and their son, James Brian Ford, was born on December 2nd of the same year. Oh, so she actually was pregnant. Oh, she was really pregnant, for sure. But I get the sense that it was on purpose, and I don't know if it was so much on Larry's side purposeful. But, you know, takes two to tango. I don't know what kind of birth control was available at the time or what he was doing. So there you go. I mean, there was really a baby there. It was a stressful time for the couple. Barbara even had to briefly move in with Larry's parents while Larry finished school. And Barbara had had to drop out of school. So it was just, it was a weird time where she's like living at home with his family. He had some younger siblings too. So it's like a very crowded space. He's trying to finish his degree. He's also working full time. Eventually when the baby was a little older, she went to work for Sears Finally, Larry graduated and they got an apartment together in High Point, North Carolina. And after a while, they managed to buy a house. Larry was student teaching and Barbara worked in a bank. This is like five years into their marriage. And it seemed like Barbara was not so happy with the marriage that she had seemingly trapped Larry in. (laughs) It was apparently not exactly what she imagined. And she began this pendulum swing of wildly spending money that they did not have or engaging in infidelity. Both not cool. And this would be kind of a habit of hers. She clearly was looking for some thrill that she wasn't getting from her normal life. And so it was literally if she wasn't cheating, she was creating massive amounts of debt and trying to hide it from him. And if she had even a remote handle on her finances, then she was cheating. It just was one or the other. Yeah. I mean, I get how having an affair can be thrilling, but it's also like so stressful. But I don't get how like getting yourself in debt can be thrilling. I think some people are just addicted to spending. Like the same way people have gambling issues. Yeah. I think some people, it seems like especially a lot of women enjoy spending spending money. They like buying things. They like having things, having nice things, you know, even when they can't afford them, which yes, it totally boggles my mind too, because I just, I can't care about stuff that much, especially to the point of being so stressed and worried as like someone who 
you know, Nathaniel and I went totally bankrupt following a disastrous startup that we both worked for. The stress of that situation was so immense that I can't imagine ever putting myself in that situation again. Yeah. 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 So Larry told his mother about a weekend that Barbara told him she was going to go to her parents' cottage. They had like this little like beachside cottage. And she was like, yeah, I'm going to go to the cottage with some girls for a girls trip. And he at this point had no reason to suspect that anything was awry until he got a late night phone call and a woman's voice that he could not recognize said, do you know where your wife is? And then hung up. Oh. Yeah. So of course he was immediately suspicious, but I guess that there wasn't a phone at the beach cottage. So he ended up calling the police in the town that the beach cottage was in. And he was like, hey, can you just, yeah, can you swing by this cottage and just make sure there's like, should be a group of women there. And I just want to make sure they're okay. And they went by and they were like, dude, there's no one there. The place is vacant. So you don't know where your wife is. You do not know where your wife is. And Larry was very private. So he told this to his mother and that meant a lot to her because he didn't usually share these types of things. But she also never found out what the resolution was because they kept being married and she never knew for sure what he had said to her, if he said anything to her or where she was. So it was like, rather than continue to talk about it, she felt like her son went more inwards. He seemed unhappy. He seemed sullen, but he never spoke to her again about exactly like what was going on in their marriage behind the scenes. So Barbara was actually, in fact, sleeping around with a couple of bank patrons. She struck up a hot and heavy affair with a man named Butch Hazelwood. Oh my God. Yeah. And uh, Butch which this just sounds like it goes with his name, owned a used car lot. And he used the bank to provide financing for his customers, which is how he met Barbara. And Butch is kind of gross. He likes to kiss and tell a lot, which is how we know that this affair happened. He even like, after the fact, like testifies and stuff. Jesse, it's just locker room talk. <laughs> yes, well, he engaged in a lot of it. And he even told a colleague of Barbara's that she was like insatiable, voracious, that she wanted to like bang all night. It was like the craziest sex he's ever had and stuff. And he's like, she just can't get enough. For everyone who doesn't know me that well, that was very thick sarcasm. <laughs> yes, it is. <laughs> And he's disgusted with that sort of behavior, as am I. Well, especially in like the, what was this at this point, the mid-80s? Yeah, we're in the 70s okay, right now. We're mid-70s. I mean, I guess there's some sex positivity in the 60s and 70s, but nothing like there is today, you know? And so if someone's going around no. town saying this shit about you. I mean, still to this day, I think that we still have women who have any sort of healthy libido villainized, yeah. you know? Yeah. It's still it's still not equal. Like, men can be studs and women are sluts. Yeah, but- men sleep with all the women and they're, like, such a stud and a woman sleeps with a bunch of guys or, or, or women sleep with women and they're, like, complete sluts. It's insane. It's crazy. It's a crazy double standard that I think is going to take generations to really dispel. I think, like, the younger generations have a lock on it. Way better than even our generation. 100%. So I hope by the time like our girls are growing up that they're facing a different reality. That they can do whatever the fuck they want. Exactly. Or who. (laughs) Safely. Safely, girls. (laughs) Safely. (laughs) 
<laughs> yeah, but I mean, the other thing is it's gross to talk about this stuff and Butch is gross. But also, again, like we said, it's fine. Sleep with whoever you want. But like, don't don't go behind your husband's back. I was just going to say, she's you know? cheating. She's cheating. So we're not we're not Barb we're not fans over here. We're not. <laughs> We're not pro Barb. We're pro pro sex and pro happiness, but we are anti Barb. Pro honest. <laughs> pro honesty. Yes, absolutely. So yeah, the affair faltered though when Barbara became pregnant again. So this it does look like based on the the kids and the pictures that I saw, it definitely looks like it was also Larry. So it seems like she was still sleeping with Larry at this time too. By all accounts, even though she was having an affair, it really does seem like Jason, who is their second baby, who was born on July 27th, 1974, was most likely Larry's. Okay. And of course, like if he was listening, I wouldn't want to cast any aspersions on his paternity, you know? But yeah, so basically the affair broke up after she got pregnant again. However, when Barbara came back to work after giving birth to Jason... She went back to her old tricks and she started another affair with a coworker as well as another bank patron. And things ended up getting pretty serious with the younger coworker. A bank patron? Yeah. So like another, so like two of the affairs from this era were like regulars who came in and she Whoa. did business with. Whoa. Yeah. And then the third guy that she actually gets a little serious with was a colleague. So she is like, you know, they say don't shit where you eat. She is like taking a dump on the buffet over here, you know? Oh my goodness. Yeah. And so she got really into this young guy and she thought there was a future. So she actually separated from Larry at this point and she moved her and her sons into an apartment and was like, I'm officially done with you. But the younger guy did not have the same sense of forever that she apparently did. And within only a few months of the separation, he dumped her. Oh, no. So now she's just single momming it with the two kids? Yeah, she was devastated by this. Like we've said before, she doesn't handle rejection well. So she was so upset, she actually resigned from the bank, like quit her job because she didn't want to see him every day and moved in with her parents in Durham for a little while. And she was deeply depressed at this point. And so she started, of course, reaching back out to Larry, being like, hey, I made a mistake. I love you. I want you back. And... Larry's mom begged him not to take her back, but he was like, I really think that the boys need their family together and yeah. I want to be that type of dad. And I, and I think that they need their mom as well. And I don't want to do this. You know, I want to be a family. So he got, he took her back. They got back together, you know, and he was very committed to making it work this time. But unfortunately, Barbara wasn't as committed and she kept up her yo-yo pattern of spending wildly or taking lovers. Barbara got a new job as a secretary to a multimillionaire businessman and, of course, started sleeping with him. I mean, just get a divorce or keep it in your pants, people. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. or have an open marriage if that's, like, what uh, on the table for you and your partner. Oh, so much to keep up with. Also, I can't imagine. It sounds exhausting. I can't imagine having two young children, a job, a husband, and then like running around with various lovers, like it's exhausting sounding. I literally just yawned. <laughs> the idea of it is putting you to sleep. <laughs> so Larry became troubled by his suspicions, but he didn't know what to do. Like he didn't have any proof. It wasn't like that cottage 
experience. And Barbara was a really good liar. So he like trust, he like tried to trust his gut. He tried to listen to his gut, but he didn't have any proof. So Barbara kept overriding it. So he had all this like pent up frustration. So he ended up getting into Taekwondo. And that is kind of like how he got that energy out. And he ended up getting really good at it. He became a black belt, actually. Wow. Yeah. I mean, it's so sad that that was like the impetus behind it. But he was very talented. And the people who worked with him at the Taekwondo gym loved him. They said he was amazing. He was just like a great person. And he like helped other people with their techniques and was like kind of a teacher as well, you know. So meanwhile, the the millionaire guy dumps Barbara, of course. And then she is forced to resign from her position. <laughs> oh my God, she's a mess. A mess. I mean, that's obviously going to happen when you sleep with your boss and then he dumps you. He's going to dump you from the company as well, you know? He's like, no, I'm breaking up with you. And she's like, oh, that's okay. I'll still come in tomorrow. And he's like, no, I'm like breaking up with you, like <laughs> with everything. He's like, please okay, get so your my- banker box and get out of here. My boyfriend hat is on and this isn't working out. Okay, hold on. Let me take off my boyfriend hat, put on my boss hat. So this just really isn't working out for us. Here's your severance package. Yeah. So at this point, of course, she has to go home and give Larry a reason why she was fired. And so she spun it as she had to quit because she wanted to make more money. And she was going to make more money by becoming a realtor. So she does join a realty office and it's owned by this young, vivacious woman named Kay Pugh. And Kay sounds like a real fun boss babe. She was apparently super beautiful, very epulent, very charming, like exactly what you want out of the personality of somebody who's a realtor, you know, like they have to be outgoing and warm And she was only in her 20s, but she already was a partner in the realty company. And she also had her own huge house with beautiful landscaping and a swimming pool. So Barbara idolized her. However, Barbara was no KPU in the realtor department. In over three months on the job, Barbara would fail to make a single sale. You could try hard to not. I mean, she didn't even get a rental. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) So yeah, Barbara wasn't doing so great. I think she was having... A rough go around this time as well, because Larry apparently told a Taekwondo buddy that Barbara had reported to him that she was being stalked by a strange man and that she was concerned for her well-being. So this buddy suggested roughing the guy up with some Taekwondo moves. Wow. Yeah. He's like, why don't we follow him down the street and really give him what for with our Taekwondo fists of fury over here? And Larry was like, no, 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 no. Thank you. But no, thank you. And he told this friend that he was just going to buy a gun for Barbara for her protection. Oh, smart. Yeah. That was also sarcasm. (laughs) (laughs) I forget sometimes it doesn't stick. Yeah, it might not translate. Yeah, I think it's it's always a, a wise idea to give your conniving, unfaithful, insane wife a gun just definitely do that Mm -hmm. so yeah on monday march 20th 1978 barbara's minister at their church received a call from her barbara claimed that twice in recent days a man had followed her home and that she was buying a gun but needed a character reference so she could get a gun permit he agreed and the next day barbara purchased a 25 semi-automatic pistol she went with a co-worker who she had also slept with a guy at the real oh office. my god yeah and he taught her how to use the gun 
and some other things, I'm guessing. So Larry had Taekwondo that night, and after a particularly rigorous class, he returned to his home around 9.30 p.m. Three hours later, at 12.36 a.m. on Wednesday morning, a 911 call came through from the Ford house. Two EMTs were immediately dispatched and found a short, young blonde woman at the door. Barbara told them that her husband had been shot and she feared he was dead. So Barbara gestured to the staircase like she's basically saying, like, I can't go up there, but that's where he is. And the men discovered the victim, Larry Ford, lying on his back in bed wearing his pajamas. The covers were pulled up over his chest, but when the EMT pulled the bedspread down, it was clear that he was dead. Dried blood covered the sheets and the pajama top. Larry's face was deathly white and parts of his body were already purpled with lividity. Under the covers near Larry's left hip was a loaded clip for a semi-automatic pistol. The EMTs also found a 25 caliber pistol on the floor next to the bed as though Larry had dropped it. So they returned downstairs to deliver the very bad news to his wife that Larry was definitely dead. Years later, EMT Bob Perry would still remember how coolly Barbara took the news. So he was like, there was no reaction whatsoever. She was just like, oh, no, really? Oh, man, that's a bummer. And Bob, the EMT, his own wife had a 25 caliber pistol herself, and he knew that it would not fire without the clip. So he ended up telling his supervisor that he suspected that this was being potentially made to look like Larry shot himself, but he didn't think it was possible. Okay. So the police are called, and Barbara relates what happened to them. She claimed that Larry had come home from his regular Taekwondo class complaining of a kick to the groin. So he was like in a little bit of pain. And after he returned home, they watched some TV together and went to bed around 11 p.m. Because the injury had made him feel uncomfortable, Larry was tossing and turning and it was preventing Barbara from sleeping. So eventually she went downstairs to the couch and turned on a movie. And she said that she drifted off to sleep like while watching the movie. All of a sudden, she said there was this loud bang from upstairs. Now... They had this piece of artwork in their home that for some reason always fell off the hook upstairs and it would create a loud bang when it fell. And this was something that one of their babysitters also testified to being true. It happened quite frequently. So she was thinking that it was the picture falling off the wall. So she went upstairs and when she got upstairs, she realizes in her haze that the picture's still on the wall. So she's like, huh, what could that noise have been? Are the kiddos home? The kiddos are home. They're asleep. Yeah. I know. It's so sad. Um, So, yeah, she goes into her bedroom, which is where she realizes that her husband had been shot. So according to Jerry Bledsoe, this story did sound plausible to the sheriff's deputy, Alan, who was on the scene, as well as Sergeant Bowman. Alan figured that Larry, unable to sleep, had gotten up to look at the gun because it was new. Like many people, he probably figured that it wouldn't fire with the clip removed. But when he took the clip out, a round remained in the chamber. So this is what they're theorizing. Thinking it unloaded, he might have idly pulled the trigger with the gun aimed toward himself. Why? Come on. 
Come on. Yeah. This seems Come like they're, on. they're really bending over backwards to corroborate her story, you know, rather than do the thing you'd think they would do, which is be skeptical, you know? So the responding officers, Alan and Bowman, spent less than an hour at the house. Before they left, Alan told Barbara that he would have to take the gun, the clip, and the shells and hold them for 30 days. Take it, she said. I don't ever want to see it again. When Alan typed his report at the end of his shift, he closed it by writing, as a result of my own investigation, I determined the shooting was accidental and Sergeant Bowman signed his concurrence. So was she crying or anything during this? Well, she was acting really coolly, according to the EMTs. And I think that the police, the police who were on the scene originally thought she was maybe just in shock. Okay. So Barbara's family immediately comes to be by her side, but Barbara doesn't even call Larry's family, which is so, wow, so screwed up. Yeah, she actually has her minister call them. Wow. Which would be my first call. Like before I even called my family, I would call my husband's family to let them know that something bad happened, you know? Oh my God. Yep. Meanwhile, a detective, so the the guys who are responding on the scene, they were not technically homicide detectives. So a detective finally hears about the shooting like way after the fact. So the next day when Larry's body is already at the morgue and the entire crime scene has all been cleaned up, like all of the sheets have been either thrown out or laundered, like everything is changed. You know, she could have moved uh, anything around at that point. Yeah. And so of course, Detective Bueller is pissed off because this is actually a breach of protocol they are supposed to in any shooting get a detective right on the scene and they didn't so the crime scene officers still contend it was an accident but Bueller decides to test the man's hands for gunpowder residue just to be sure which is very smart if they're trying to say that he shot himself you know so while he's waiting for the test results to come in, Barbara throws a funeral for Larry. Larry's parents and siblings are still stunned at how this could have happened at all. Like it just, they're shocked because they're like, Larry knew how to handle guns. You know, they live in North Carolina in this era that I think everybody, you know, had a gun or used guns. You know, they said that Larry had learned from an early age how to handle guns safely. You don't shoot it while it's facing you accidentally if you know how to handle guns. Yeah, so they're completely perplexed out of as how this could have, you know, happened. And they're also suspicious of Barbara because they know that she's been unfaithful. They know that she's made a lot of financial mistakes in their marriage. So they're like, this seems very bizarre. And then when they're in the funeral parlor, they like come into like a room and Barbara's there with her mother and she's crying. What have I done? And... So, of course, that seems very suspicious. And when Marva, her mother, sees that the Fords are coming into the room, she's like, shh, 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 shut up. And, like, gets her to, like, quiet down from, she was crying and being like, what have I done? What have I done? So, yeah, they end up getting further offended when, like, literally at the funeral, they're, like, leaving the funeral. And she's like, do you want Larry's leather jacket? Do you want this? Because I'm getting rid of everything. So if you don't take it now, it's going to be gone. Oh, Wow. Yeah, so they're just really put off by the fact that she's, like, moving on so quickly. So one week after the shooting, speaking of moving on quickly, Barbara began the process of collecting on Larry's will and life insurance. I was going to ask about that life insurance. Oh, yeah, she has a goodly amount of life insurance. She also quit the realty company, which was, frankly, a relief for Kay because she hadn't made a gosh darn sale, of course. 
and says like now that she's like financially okay and she just wants to like, you know, be with her parents and grieve and she can't work. But speaking of Kay, in a truly disturbing coincidence, only 15 days after Larry's death, Kay and her close friend, Brenda Wilmoth, were both accosted and shot to death by Brenda's husband, Tommy. Oh my God. I know. It's insane. So apparently Brenda had been attempting to leave the abusive Tommy and Kay was helping her. Yeah, that's so fucked. It's so terrible. I mean, we like always encourage women to leave these abusive situations. Of course we do. And it's so dangerous for them when they finally get the courage to do so. Because so often their abusers don't even care about themselves. They just want to punish the person they've been abusing all these years. So that's what happened. And Tommy's arrested. I mean, it was like there was witnesses. This was this happened in plain sight. You couldn't say anyone else did it. So Tommy pled guilty to second degree murder. And when he's interviewed by the police, he bizarrely claims that Barbara, Kay, and Brenda were in a lesbian love triangle and had all vowed to kill their husbands. He said that after Larry's death, he feared for his life and killed Kay and Brenda in self-defense, basically killing them before they could kill him. It's completely ridiculous. It was absolutely not true and had no grounds in reality. But, of course, it was a juicy story for a community that doesn't have a lot of murders. And all of a sudden you have two within an almost two-week span. And they know each other. They know each other. Like some part of our narrative human brains wants to create a story about that. That you makes know? sense. Yep. That like some sort of rationalization. Yeah. Exactly. And so the rumor mill went crazy. And also it's like, you know, the guys saying that they have a lesbian love triangle, which is like, we're talking 70s North Carolina. This had to be like so wild sounding, you know? So yeah, unfortunately, these rumors kind of really buffed Larry's investigation because people were like trying to investigate whether that was even remotely true rather than just like Barb killing her husband for money, you know? When the gunpowder residue report came back, it was determined that Larry had not fired the gun at all. No shit, Sherlock. Uh Uh-huh. Detective Bueller now strongly suspected that Barbara had shot Larry and ordered a new autopsy. So Larry was exhumed, and though the autopsy conditions were poor, as Larry had already been embalmed, (sighs) and, like, the gunshot wound had been, like, plugged up, he had also been in the ground for a few wet months, and I guess his coffin wasn't sealed very well, so it wasn't perfect. But the coroner was able to prove that Larry had been shot at close range. His death was reclassified as a homicide. So beginning to feel the heat, Barbara pulled up stakes and moved to Durham permanently, telling people she needed to be near her parents during her grieving time. Eventually, the investigation floundered. I mean, it's pretty obvious what happened, but years later, Bueller would acknowledge that his investigation came to a halt after the new autopsy results. He told author Jerry Bledsoe, The only thing we really had to go on was the gunshot residue. Other than that, I couldn't get anything. Moreover, the assistant DA with whom he had conferred did not seem that interested in pressing the matter. I just didn't get any cooperation from the DA, and I really didn't have a case, he recalled. One piece of evidence is not enough to take somebody to death row on. He's right. Yeah. So after her move to Durham, Barbara ceased all contact with the Fords, despite their many, many attempts to stay in touch with their two young grandsons. 
So she just like cut them out of her life completely. The Fords also did everything they possibly could to keep Larry's case open and actively investigated. But eventually there was an election and a new political party took over the sheriff's office. And so usually when that happens, there's always a huge staff turnover. Yeah. And eventually the case was just forgotten when the new officers came in and nobody like repicked up the case, you know? So Barbara was able to ultimately collect $119,000 in life insurance money, wow. which in 2021 money would be more like 330000 Whoa. It's a good chunk of change. And she just went merrily on her way. Nobody's looking into her even a little bit. So she starts shopping for a new house. She briefly considered a house only a few blocks from her parents with a for sale sign in the window. But the recently separated seller, a man named Russell Steger, decided to pull it from the market. Oh, no. Yep. What? So they met by chance when he was kind of selling his house before he decided not to. Barbara did not mind that the house wasn't on the market. She was much more interested in if the man was. <laughs> at this point, she had actually just started dating a man at her parents' church. So even though she's interested in Russ, she's focusing on this new guy for now. When has that mattered to her, though? It has never mattered to her. After meeting this guy, Jim, which is a pseudonym in the book. So we're going to call him Jim. I don't know what his real name is. After meeting Jim at Ebenezer Baptist, he got real cozy, real fast with Barbara, which seems like her style. Jim thought that the relationship was mostly sexual in nature and was surprised when Barbara began pushing for an engagement only a couple short months after meeting. Oh my God. Could you imagine that? No, especially because he knew her husband had died. I mean, he thought it was a tragic accident. Yeah. People didn't know that it was a shooting death. In fact, some people just thought like when they said he died in an accident, I think people assumed it was like a car accident. Of course, you know? yeah. So he's like, this seems a little like we're moving too fast because your husband literally just died and we just started dating. I think we really need to chill out a little bit. Oh, I bet she didn't like that, though. She did not like that. And also, she had been honest with him about having a tubal ligation after Jason was born. So I didn't mention this, but after Jason was born, she did get her tubes tied. She didn't want to have any more kids. So while she's dating this guy, she's planning a future with them. And one night they're hooking up and he's like concerned about birth control. And she's like, don't worry about it. I got my tubes tied. So he knew that she couldn't have any more kids. And ultimately, when he felt uncomfortable with her pushing an ultimatum for them to get married, he was like, look, I really like you, but this is not actually going towards the future because I want to have my own biological kids and you can't have kids anymore. Okay. So she was really pissed about this. And telling the truth was a mistake that Barbara would not make again. So she's not going to tell old Russ that she can't have kids. Oh, my God. Mm-hmm. After the breakup, she remembered the handsome mustachioed stranger at the house that was not for sale, and she made her move. Wait, is mustachioed, like, actually, like, he has a mustache? Yes, that's what mustachioed means. <laughs> Word of the day. It would be weird if it meant something else. Like, what, what else could it mean? I feel like it could be, like, it could be, like, he's, you know, mustachio. Like, he is a mustache? Like, what does that mean? He is mustachio. <laughs> like, he's like a cowboy, you know? He's like a wild yeah. west, like, mustachio. Oh, he's like, mustachio. it's like, he's, 
He's, he's macho. He's a mustache. He's the physical embodiment of a mustache is pretty much what I'm trying to say. <laughs> I like that from now on. He's like, a, you know, a mustachio. <laughs> no, it just means he has a mustache. <laughs> One of those mustachio types. Let's talk about mustachio Russ over here. So Russ was born in 1948 to a World War II vet and telephone company employee named Al and his loving wife, Doris, which if you are keeping score at home, that is two Dorises as mother-in-laws for Barbara, which is crazy. Unlike husband number one, Larry, who had been somewhat introverted and always studious, Russ was a gregarious and popular athlete who often couldn't focus enough on school to be truly scholastically successful. However, he was absolutely amazing at sports and teamwork, and he decided very early on to pursue a career in high school coaching. Yeah, the driven young athlete grew into a handsome, sought-after young man. One female admirer even compared him to Robert Redford. And based on his pictures, I don't see Robert Redford. So I think she was talking more about like his energy was very Robert Redford. Like he was confident. He had charisma. People were just drawn to him. Okay. So Russ attended a junior college and while on a break from school, he met a dark-eyed brunette working concessions at a basketball game. Her name was Jo Lynn Ellen and she would eventually become Russ's first wife. After graduating in 1972, he achieved his goal of becoming a phys ed teacher and an assistant coach at Holton Junior High School in Durham, North Carolina. Russ and Jo Lynn were married in 1974 but trouble erupted in their marriage only three years later when Jolyn heard rumors that Russ was dating a high school student. Oh, that's bad. That is real, real bad, that's Russ. Really bad. So one night when Russ didn't come home, Jolyn went out looking for him and she found his car at the home of one of Russ's friends who was also a fellow coach. So she staked him out and she saw him come out at two in the morning and he was holding the hand of a teenage girl. Jessica, pray you are lying. No, I mean, I don't want to speak ill of the dead, but gross, buddy, gross. That is never okay. Yeah. So basically, JoLynn held back. She let them leave and she went straight up to the door of the friend and she like banged on it. And she was like, I just saw him leave with some teenage girl. What the hell is going on? You're going to tell me. Yeah. And the friend was like, I don't know. I don't think it's as bad as it looks. Like you have to just talk to Russ. I'm not getting involved. And so when she calmed down and he like had, had clearly just dropped the girl off and then come home. She confronted him and he very lamely claimed that she was just a troubled student that he was helping out. So now he's gaslighting his wife. Yes. Also, I don't care how troubled a student is. You should not be with them at two in the morning holding their hand. Yeah, you should be with them at anything that isn't school related. No, like if she stayed after class and sat on a different side of the desk and wanted to tell you that she was having some problems, then you say, okay, like that's upsetting and I'm glad you confided in me and you should see the school guidance teacher, you know? That's how you handle that situation. Yeah. So JoLynn didn't believe a word of it. She was a smart cookie and she did leave him to move in with her parents. But after two weeks, he begged and begged and begged. He promised he was never going to engage with that girl again. And JoLynn did take him back, but it wasn't good ever again. You know, the trust was broken. So the marriage limped on for another year before they called it quits. And it was really like 
she'd been angry. But then after a year, like it, it was kind of amicable. She said that later they had had like a blackout. So the electricity had gone out and they were forced to just kind of like sit and talk to each other for an entire night. I didn't night. know if you meant that or that they had like gotten blackout together. No, no, the electricity had gone out. But I feel like either way is a way to find out how your relationship is going. Sitting in the dark and chatting with somebody or getting blackout with them. You're going to find some truths at the end of that journey. So they were sitting in the dark and talking and she was like, I have nothing in common with this guy. I don't even know why we're together. And she just like blurted out. She's like, do you want to just separate? And he's like, yeah, yeah, let's do that. So they ended, ended up like, separating on really good terms like he hadn't continued seeing a teenager after that so she was like it's fine we're just not meant to be with each other however speaking of teenagers following the divorce russ dated a 17 year old recent high school graduate who had previously been a student of his so the girl for very good reason is pseudonymed in the book as sybil And she wanted to keep things casual, but Russ was completely in love with her and was like, let's get married after you graduate from college. I want to do this long term with you. And she was like, no, this was a fling. (laughs) Yeah. So eventually this girl goes to college. She meets guys her own age and she's like, I don't want any part of your messiness. I am out. But she said that she knew something was going on because even though they were kind of like breaking up and she was trying to break up with him, he was all of a sudden mentioning this woman, Barb, who was coming around and he was like talking about her like she was a friend. And I guess at some like high school football game when she was home from college, they all ran into each other. And she was like, oh yeah, she was working it. She was coming on to him hardcore and she saw me as a rival 100%. So she wasn't at all surprised when she found out like after she officially dumped him that he had moved on with Barb. And it was actually kind of perfect for Barb because Russ was apparently very upset about this breakup And he was in a very vulnerable position. So she could catch him on the rebound, you know? So yeah, by mid-October, the two were a committed couple regularly attending church hand in hand. Mind you, this is less than seven months after her husband's death. And she's already had one full-on relationship before this as well. Oh my gosh. She's not... She's not slow. Not slow. And for somebody who, when she is in relationships, seems to always cheat on them, it seems to me very surprising how fast she seems to push for marriage. Yeah. So she started doing the same thing within only a couple months. She starts being like, what's our future? When are we going to get engaged? And this time, however, I can kind of understand what she's doing because she had somehow burned through all of her insurance money. She had bought a house. She had bought new cars. She bought designer furniture and designer clothes for herself and for the kids. So she had actually begun stealing from her bank job and they had discovered it. So this is happening during her courtship with Russ. So I think she's kind of thinking she wants to get him on the hook so that she could use his financial resources as well, you know? So Barbara seduced Russ with nonstop sex and the promise of more children, which, of course, she could not deliver on as she had had the tubal ligation. And it totally worked. He was like, went to his mom and he's like, how do you feel about me having an instant family? Like, I'm really into this woman and she has two kids and this wasn't what I was expecting. But, 
you know, the kids are really great and they don't have a dad and, you know, she's pretty cool. I'm getting laid on the regs, mom. I think he left that part out. But yeah, it was true. I mean, that was what he characterized their relationship to other people too. And he did it in a less sleazy way. He was just kind of like that part of our relationship is really, really strong, you know? So he ends up falling for it and they ended up married only six months into dating and five days shy of the anniversary of Larry's death. Whoa. So crazy. Yeah, they got married on March 17th, 1979. And after the wedding, Barbara completely. It's just so sad. It it is really sad. It's so sad because it's like that first year is really, really hard for people who are actually mourning someone, you know, and it doesn't seem like she spent any of it. Of course she did. Of course she didn't. You know, she has no sense of self-awareness. She, even if she didn't do anything to Larry, I don't think she would have, you know, spent some time looking and thinking about herself and taking time to be there for her children. She is just moving on with what she wants and it's very shallow, you know? Yeah. And, and she's hooked this guy with lies. She can't have any more children and she's promised him that they will have more children together. I mean, even worse is that after they get married, she already had been telling the Fords that the children couldn't come to the phone if they called. She had been taking their letters and their presents that they sent the kids and hiding them. She was already putting a barrier up. So the Fords lost not only their son, but now they were losing their grandkids. And even worse, after the marriage, she has Russ formally adopt them and change their last names to Stager. Oh my God, that has to be so sad for his parents because like he's the last piece exactly. of their son. And now they have new last names. There was no pictures of Larry in the home. And Russ's mom actually noticed this. You know, Doris number two was like, hey, you know, I heard your husband died tragically. Like, what was he like? You know, like where pictures? Like, I'd love to hear about him. Is he like Russ? Like, is he, you know? And she's like, I don't really like to talk about it. And she like begged her for a photo and she finally like dug one up that was like buried somewhere deep. And she's like, oh, he's like a really nice looking man and and stuff like that. And then she was like, do his grandparents get to see him? And she was like, no, they're not involved. They don't want to be They're They were terrible to me while we were married. And now they want nothing to do with my children, which was just a blatant lie. Yeah, she even instructs the kids to start calling Russ's parents Mima and Pawpaw. Oh my God, that's so Yeah, that's North like her, their cutesy names for their grandparents. And she's like, these are your grandparents yep. now, essentially. Which also wow. made Doris feel uncomfortable. She was like, of course I love these kids. My son loves these kids. But like, <clears throat> as a mother, it would break my heart if I wasn't involved in my grandchildren's life. So she felt yeah. badly for the Fords, but she only yeah. had Barbara's word to go on that these people actually didn't want to be involved in their lives, you know? Well, speaking of lying, twice in the early Stager marriage, did Barbara pretend to get pregnant and have a miscarriage? Twice. Twice in like the first year, she would go as far as like wearing maternity clothes and like saying that they were picking out names. And Russ was actually his his real first name was Allison. It was a family name. And they're like, we're going to name him Allison Russ, like the third, if it's a boy and call him Rusty. And if it's a girl, we'll just name her Allison for the family. Like she is full on pretending to Russ's family that she is pregnant. And then faking the miscarriage twice. 
real easy to fake a miscarriage if you're crazy. It was really sad for Russ because after a while, well, you of he's course. going through all this, all this hope, all this excitement, and then he he's losing his children. He thinks. I mean, that's the death of a child, you know. What a roller yeah, coaster. and of course his family is also involved. You know, feeling sad, and they were excited about new babies too. So after a while, she just puts on a full-on show for him and is like crying. And she's like, I just can't, I can't go through this again. I can't do it. I can't go through a miscarriage again. So we have to just stop trying. And he felt so bad for his wife that he was like, of course, like, of course, I'm never going to put you through this. Like, I love your sons. There are enough kids for me. I don't need any biological children. Like I have these two beautiful boys, you know, which is what you know, you want your spouse to do, but your spouse should be able to know all of the facts before he gets married to you, you know? Wow. That's like, it's, so it's just up. cruel. I mean, also just to get it's like 100%. emotionally abusive. Yeah. And it didn't stop there. Continuing her work of being the absolute worst, Russ's friend, Harry gave her a job at the radio station he managed and she ended up totally fleecing him. So the deal was that she was going to sell ads for the radio station and it was a 100% commission only job. However, he was like, I don't want you to like not have some money while you're getting started because it takes a little while to make a sale and build up a clientele. So he's like, I will forward you an advance of $150 a week. And then eventually when you start making commission, you'll just pay it back to me. (laughs) Which you can imagine how that went with her previous sales record. Maybe she should stay out of sales, but also secretarial work and also bank work. So I don't know. And also banging. Yeah, all of that should stop. So around this time, she does try to get a new career. She tells everybody that she has written a novel called Untimely Death, loosely based on Larry's death. This bitch. And she tells everybody, even though nobody has read it, that it's going to be a bestseller and that Doubleday has decided to publish it and that he they had believed in the book so much they'd actually sent her a $400,000 advance. All, all, all lies. lies. Yes. So that March of 1982, Barbara quit working at the radio station saying that she no longer needed the money and she needed time to promote the book's release. So Harry was relieved when she quit because he found out also that when she was going to like department stores, hardware stores, whatever, trying to get advertising, not only was she not selling anything, she was buying things on credit and not paying it back. So the stores were calling him at the radio station being like, hey, your ad girl was out here and she bought X, Y, and Z and she hasn't paid it back. And we only let her buy it on credit because she was associated with the radio station. So he's like, this is really a sticky situation too, because he was really good friends with Russ. So he's like, I don't want to get into a weird situation bringing this up. It's really awkward, but at least at that point she quit. And of course, she had drawn all of these paychecks for months of work that she hadn't done. So he's relieved when this all happens because he thinks, okay, good. Like she's going to be making a ton of money from this book and she can pay us back because contractually, if she doesn't make the money for the radio station, she has to pay it back. So he's like, now that she's going to be so successful, it's not going to be as awkward to bring up the fact that she needs to like pay us back a couple thousand dollars. 
Which is probably a lot. Oh, to absolutely. Him. It totally is. Like not to mention a couple months of not having any ad sales. That's detrimental to the company. I mean, you know, you run a small business. If you hire somebody and you're paying them to do sales and they don't make a single goddamn sale for months, that hurts your bottom line. They are really like living high now on this imaginary $400,000 advance. Like Barbara convinces Russ that they can sign up for a country club at this point. So they join a country club. But like after months and months of no book coming out, her friends and her bank become a little bit suspicious. <laughs> Had she even written anything? So apparently later on, there's like some very badly written like pages found, but it was literally pages. It wasn't even like full chapters. So from before he wakes, Barbara still couldn't give her friends a publication date for untimely death, but she did confide in them that there was movie interest in her book. She said she was certain that it was going to be bought by a major studio. As the weeks went on, people kept asking when the book would be coming out. But Barbara kept coming up with excuses for the book. So also at this point, Barbara had taken out a loan from the bank based on this income. So she had shown them a letter that she had falsified this like letter with double day like a letterhead on it. And she had written a letter from an imaginary editor being like, hey, we're going to pay her X amount of money. She's going to get an advance of 25000 to start. So you can absolutely give her this loan because we're going to be publishing in March and she'll get the money. So bold. Well, she's like telling friends like, yeah, it'll be out soon and there's going to be a movie and stuff. She's also having to fend off the bank. When her note came due, she couldn't pay it and she asked to extend it another 90 days. So this obviously raised suspicion from her loan officer. The collateral letter had been clear about a March publication date and $25,000 of income that it would bring. So the person who had processed the loan and had confirmed the letter was asked to look into it. So he called an acquaintance who worked at Doubleday, a woman from Durham, and she promised to investigate. What she found out was a shocker to him. Maybe not to, not so much to you, Andy. She wrote to tell him that Barbara's letter was a complete mystery at the publishing house. Nobody there had ever heard of an editor named Francis DeBose, which was the name on the letter. Pressed by the bank, Barbara managed to pay back the loan, but how she did, it would become a mystery for Russ's family who would not learn about the loan for many years. Russ never mentioned the loan to them and they were sure that he never knew about it they would come to suspect that Barbara had turned to her parents to pay back the money. By August, with no book and no money forthcoming from Barbara, Harry Welch decided that he had better try to collect the money that she still owed his radio station for her salary advances. It was a ticklish matter, like I said, because of the friendship, and Harry didn't want to ask for it, so he got the radio station's bookkeeper to call Barbara instead. An agreement was drawn up and she would have to pay back $2,903 at $100 a month. And so she came to the station and she said she agreed to that. She signed a contract that she would pay those $100 every month until it was paid off. 
Good. Yep. Eventually, Harry and her other friends were very suspicious. They were like, nobody wants to call somebody, especially their friends, with like a straight up liar, you know? No. No, it's just really awkward. And you're hoping for the best. And you also, no one believes somebody's lying to them. Like, we take what people say to us at face value, you know? Also, we're all adults here. Like, you know what I mean? Like, it's like, you're a fucking liar. It's also such a ludicrous it's such a ludicrous lie. Like she didn't have to lie. She didn't have to make up this book deal, you know? And it's easily proven when no book materializes. But there's, but a movie's coming out, Jesse. Yeah. <laughs> so they're like, okay, let's tell her that we want to throw her a book release party at the country club. And we'll just be like, okay, we just need the date of the release so we can time it and, and throw you a book party. And after like she put them off and put them off and put them off, everybody finally was like, okay, this is a hoax, right? Yeah. So when when it was kind of determined that they thought she was faking for real, Harry called a friend of a friend who also worked at Doubleday. I guess everybody knows somebody at Doubleday in this place. And it was confirmed that not only had no one ever heard of Barbara or her book, but that also $400,000 was a ludicrous sum of advance money for a non-celebrity unknown author's first book. It was quite literally unbelievable. The person's like, there is no way we would have given anyone that amount of money for an unknown person to publish their first book. So bad. So yeah, so Harry's like, I gotta tell Russ that his wife is a liar. So Harry takes Russ out to lunch and he's like, hey, I've got some bad news. I talked to somebody at Doubleday and your wife does not have a book coming out. She's been lying to everybody. And I guess Russ was like, oh shit. Well, I never read it. So I guess like I could see how that could be the case. And he's like, well, thank God she still has her job with you, Harry. And Harry's like, uh, what? And he's like, yeah, like, thank God she's doing so well at ad sales for you. And he's like, she did not do well for me. And she left months and months ago. So I don't know what she's telling you. And I guess at that, Russ broke down because she had been like leaving and pretending to go to work all day. And instead of working, she had been shopping. Oh my God. Yeah. By October, 1982, the couple was deeply in debt and Russ only discovered it after he found a shoebox crammed with bills that he had assumed had already been paid and bills that he didn't even know existed. Eventually, Russ and Barbara were in it so bad that they had to go to their parents to ask for help getting bailed out because their financial situation was tremendously terrible. So they call their parents in. Their parents are like, okay, you are going to quit the country club. They downgraded their cars. They moved into a smaller home and sold the bigger one. They had to take money from their parents just to like keep the lights on and the basics and they consolidated their debt. So eventually with their parents' help, they got to a place where they were kind of like head above water finally, which is of course when Barbara started cheating again as per her habit. In late 1983, Barbara struck up an affair with a 27-year-old co-worker. <gasps> so I think she's like eight years older than him at this point. Oh, my God. Yep. It was this company called Brame Specialty where she was working as a secretary. The young man claimed Barb was voracious, as some other guys had, demanding sex two to three times a day and every time they could sneak away. Okay. Welcome to like being literally 26. I'm just surprised though, as like 
a mom in her 30s, she's still like getting down like that. You know, and I know we have some readers. Guys, I know, I know some of you are out there going like, I'm in my 30s and I'm still banging my husband two to three times a day. And I say more power to you. I am not one of those women. Yes, 100%. We both do, but I'm just like, with a kid now, I like literally don't even, these women in the podcast that we talk about, I'm like, how? Anyone, anyone who like has time to do this full affair, I'm like, that literally sounds <laughs> it like It really does. Job. It really does. And I just cannot imagine. Like it makes well, me you know what? She was really it. maximizing her time here and scheduling around this because apparently, even on the day of her grandmother's funeral, she snuck away to get laid. So on the morning of Barbara's grandmother's funeral in January of 1984, Barbara told Russ that she needed to run some errands. So while Barbara was out, Russ decided that he wanted to get the car washed because they were going to be in the funeral procession driving and he wanted the car to look nice. Yeah. So while he's at the car wash, he looks across and there's like an abandoned lot like across from the car wash and he sees Barbara's car. So he watches it and another car pulls aside her. She gets out. And this other guy, like, stands for a second to let her in the car. It's the young guy. They start making out, get in his car, start getting busy. And so he rips it over to the the other lot. And he's like, what the hell are you doing? Like, banging on the car window. So Barbara jumps out of the car. And the young guy just, like, peels out. He's out of there. He's like, I want nothing to do with this. And... I don't know how she got out of this one, but he decided to stay in the marriage at this point. And she doesn't even break off the affair. The younger guy says that the affair went on for several more weeks after that. Oh my God. Uh, poor yeah. Russ. Eventually he must have made her an ultimatum or something because she did end up leaving the relationship according to the affair partner. At some point she was like, I can't do this anymore. And I'm also quitting the job so she wouldn't have to see him anymore. So she leaves the guy and the job and she goes to work at Duke University Medical Center, which is also where her parents work. She starts banging someone. Most likely, yes. <laughs> Around June of 1984, Russ confided in his mother that Barb was, quote, sleeping all over town and driving them into debt again. Oh, no. Yeah, so he was really bummed about this. He also confided in his ex-wife, Jolyn. Um, he used to stop by her house on his way home from the National Guard and he would just spill his guts to her. He told JoLynn about the secret debt, the affairs, the faked book. And he even speculated that he was now kind of convinced that her first husband hadn't died by accident. So he was seemed really depressed. He was very downtrodden. And he said that he was like still pining for JoLynn and she had been such a good wife and he hadn't realized it. And he felt like because he had been so bad in his first marriage he's like maybe this is karma for how I treated you you know Aww. yeah and JoLynn felt really bad for him she's like look we were really young like we both made mistakes it's fine but I only I only see you as a friend now I have lots of affection for you because at that point Russ was kind of like if you ever wanted to take me back I would go back to you for a second and she's like nah like that ship has sailed you know which is totally understandable yeah 
But yeah, so she kind of went when she gently rejected that. She didn't end up hearing from him for a little while. So she's like, maybe, maybe they got back on track. Maybe like things turned around. And I really hope it did, you know? And for a little while, it did seem like things were getting back in track. Both Barb and Russ went back to school and Russ finished his master's in physical education. Brian, their oldest son, joined the ROTC and he received a scholarship for college. Russ also joined the National Guard, where in spring of 1987, he attended Combat Pistol Coaches School so he could be certified to teach others how to use military weapons. One day on his way back from the National Guard training, Russ stopped by to see Joe Lynn one last time. He expressed hope for his marriage, but again told Joe Lynn he didn't know how realistic that was because he was still a little paranoid and afraid of Barbara. According to what Joe Lynn told author Jerry Bledsoe, he said, I know I told you once before, and I know I'm probably being paranoid, but if anything ever happens to me, I want you to look into it. Surely he was just being paranoid, Joe Lynn agreed. Maybe the same thing that had happened to Barbara's first husband, he suggested. Surely she couldn't have murdered him, Joe Lynn told him, hoping to offer reassurance. There would have been an investigation, she said. You can't just kill somebody and get away with it. But she would be clever about it, he said. She would make it look like an accident. Just promise me, he said, that if something does happen, you'll look into it. So you can imagine how JoLynn felt when a few months later, on February 1st of 1988, she found out that Russ had died in a gun accident. She was like, are you kidding me? This bitch murdered him. This bitch freaking murdered him. Yep. So here's what happened. 911 was called at 6.08 a.m. by 13-year-old Jason Steger, who told the operator that his father had been shot. Yeah, she involved her children in this. At this point, Brian is in college. So Brian isn't involved in this, although he will be brought back into it later. But Jason was home. And she had Jason call 911. He said that he didn't know what had happened, only that his father had been shot, that his father had had a gun and it had gone off. He said that he didn't know much more than that. His mother had just told him to make the call. When the EMTs arrived, Russ was still alive, but badly wounded with a gunshot wound to the head. Blood and mucus appeared to be choking him, and his labored breathing sounded like snoring. As the EMTs searched for the head wound to control the bleeding, Barbara kept moaning, My God, his guns. I'm so scared of these guns. I wish he wouldn't keep them there. I wish he wouldn't keep them under the pillow. So it was quickly decided that Russ would be transferred to Duke Medical Center, where it was determined that a bullet had passed through Russ's brain and lodged in the front of his skull. He was sadly completely brain dead and after being removed from life support was declared dead at 1230 in the afternoon. Russ's family barely had time to say goodbye and they were, of course, completely confused as to how this could possibly have happened. How, why was there a bullet in their child's brain, you know? So Barbara explained to the authorities and Russ's parents and loved ones that Russ slept with a loaded pistol underneath his pillow for protection. She said that she heard Jason wake up in the early morning to use the bathroom. 
and that she was afraid that her husband would wake and assume Jason was an intruder. So she reached under the pillow to remove the weapon. And when she did this, the gun surprisingly fired, immediately shooting Russ straight through the brain. This is what she's telling the cops. This is her story. And she's sticking to it. Wow. Which also, JoLynn, when she found out that detail, was like, that is complete bullshit. He has taken classes and taught classes about military-grade weapons. And you think your son is an intruder using the bathroom? Do you know how many times I use the bathroom at night? Yeah, and is he has he never gone? Do you know how many intruders would be in our house? I'd have, like, 12 intruders in our house every night. Well, not to mention, like, is this the first time he's ever woken up to go to the bathroom? Like, this, uh, this yeah. must be a, an occurrence that happens regularly. And furthermore, JoLynn said that in the years of her relationship and marriage with Russ, he never, ever, ever once had a weapon anywhere then tucked away and locked in like a gun case. He never kept them underneath his pillow. Anyone anyone who actually practices firearm safety always has it in a locked thing. Always. That's the way responsible gun owners are. And that's what Russ was. Especially the idea that he would have a loaded pistol with the safety off under his pillow where you're like moving around at night. No way. So Sergeant Buchanan was assigned to the case, but he, the deputies on the scene and the medical examiner all originally found Barbara's story credible. I mean, she must have been a really good actress because I cannot wrap my head around this. No. They decided a full autopsy would be unnecessary and release the body to a funeral home. When Buchanan wrote up his reports, he said, based on the current information as was provided, the death was being declared an accident. He said as much to the Durham Morning Paper when later interviewed. So he said as much to the Durham Morning Paper when interviewed. So when JoLynn burst in with her letter and concerns, Buchanan's interest was definitely piqued. Later on, Doris, Russ's mother, and Cindy, his sister, also shared their concerns and their reports of Barbara's troubling behavior. So by this point, Rick Buchanan is pretty convinced that something is up, finally. Yeah. Mm -hmm. So he ordered an autopsy, which definitively proved that Barbara had lied. There was absolutely no way the gun could have fired the way Barbara described. The trajectory of the bullet had been downward. The shooter had shot from above. Oh, my God. Meanwhile, Doris and Henry Ford, Larry's parents, were sitting down to dinner with their son, Ronnie, when the television news reported that a popular high school coach named Russ Steger from Durham had died in an accidental shooting. The family was stunned. After a moment of silence, Doris broke in. My goodness, she's killed Russ. And literally was just like sitting there in shock that somebody else had died and at that point, Ronnie just got up from the table. And before, like, Doris number one had even processed what was going on, her son Ronnie called the Durham police. And he's like, yeah, that happened to my brother. This is not an accident. Oh, my God. Yeah. All of a sudden, Sergeant Buchanan realizes he's not investigating just one, but two homicides. He also uncovers all of Barbara's lies, as well as the embezzlement at the bank from the very beginning when she met Russ, and the fact that this time Barbara is due to receive $200,000 in life insurance money. <sighs> so yeah, she upped the ante. So he asked Barbara to reenact what happened. Like, he doesn't give anything away that he's actually, like, suspicious of her. He's like, hey, we want to, like, close this officially for the insurance so you can get your insurance money. Because she was also, this greedy bitch was calling up being like, hey, can we finalize the autopsy so I can get my money? 
And so at this point, he's like, he wants her to further incriminate herself. So he's like, hey, can we like videotape like how it went down? And she's like literally like rolling around on the bed being like, and then I just like reached up and it just totally like went off. And she's incriminating herself because they know that there's literal no way that could happen. They already have the autopsy results. They know that's not the trajectory of the weapon. And they're just, she's just on tape lying. So furthermore, when Joe Lynn and Doris Steger are going through Russ's financial records, they find a check with Russ's signature, but it's clearly been forged. It's not Russ's signature. The check had been deposited into Barbara's account and used to make a payment on a delinquent loan. The day that Russ was killed was the day that his bank statement was due to drop. The police theorized that Barbara had shot Russ that day to prevent him from finding the forged check, which would have led him down a path to all of the extensive loans that Barbara had taken out without his knowledge. Oh, my God. Mm-hmm. Instead of having to come clean about how she had once again gotten them into financial ruin, she kills him, gets the insurance money, and is thusly able to pay off the loans with a tidy little sum extra. Two birds, one bullet. After the police uncover more inconsistencies in her story, most notably that she had claimed she was worried about her teenage son waking Russ up and Russ accidentally shooting him, when in reality, she also admitted as did Russ's family and his first wife, that Russ was an exceptionally heavy sleeper who had once slept through a house fire and alarm. So if he had been such a notoriously heavy sleeper, why would Barb have feared for her son's life when he was down the hall? Yep. Yeah. Doesn't make any sense. It makes no sense. Her story is real sloppy. She's getting real sloppy too. I feel like she must have been a really good liar to have gotten away with everything she got away with for all this time, but it seems like she's just getting sloppier and sloppier. Yep. Taken all together, Sergeant Buchanan has enough to charge Barbara. And on April 18th, 1988, Barbara is arrested for first degree murder. Because of her massive amount of debt, Barbara qualifies for a court appointed attorney who attempts to get her bail reduced from $250,000 to $50,000. The motion is denied, but eventually Barbara's parents, an aunt and uncle, and a few of her neighbors put their houses up for collateral to free Barbara. She has some major support. I mean, it seems very open and shut to us, but she was just such a good actress that people from her church community, her entire family, her sons, nobody believes this. Nobody thinks that she did this on purpose. They think that she is a poor widow who has had some bad luck and now she's getting railroaded by the police. For nearly a year, the police and prosecutor built their case, and less than two weeks before trial was set to begin, they discovered the most incredible piece of evidence, something that came directly from Russ himself. So we're going to get into that in just a little bit. So let's jump into the trial. So trial opens on Monday, May 1st, 1989, and the defense attempts to get two things thrown out right from the get-go. Number one is the mysterious piece of evidence that we're going to discuss shortly, and number two, any mention of Larry's suspicious death. The judge denies both motions, so everything stays in and the prosecution is off to the races. The opening day of testimony, Larry's parents and Russell's parents meet for the very first time. And the Dorises apparently like met right in court and they just went and immediately hugged each other. Oh God, so sad. I I mean, it's the worst club to be in. Can you imagine the kinship they must have felt towards each other? Like this happened to my son and then she took your son out too, you know? Ugh. 
The prosecution asserted that both Russ and Larry's deaths were homicides enacted by a money and sex hungry black widow. Some of the evidence they provided to make their point was the forged check, the murder weapon that turned out to be extremely difficult to accidentally shoot, the multiple infidelities. Yeah, you'll we'll get to that later. But they're like, yeah, there's no way you can just brush this gun and it's going to go off. As well as like the million elaborate lies that Barbara told everyone. So firearms experts testified that both Larry and Russ's situations, as described by Barbara, were factually impossible. In Larry's case, the lack of gunshot residue on his hands proved that he did not shoot the gun, and a series of tests where they dropped the gun onto a tile floor from a set of heights proved that only occasionally did the gun go off from the height of more than six So what they did essentially was they were trying to rule out the fact that maybe he could have dropped the gun and it went off and shot him. Uh huh. So they took the exact murder weapon and they dropped it onto a tile floor from a series of heights. And only sometimes at the six feet height did it go off. But the firearms expert said that there's no way it could have gone off in their bedroom because they actually had a thick carpeted floor and he wouldn't have been dropping it from a height of six feet, obviously. No. And in Russ's case, that pistol specifically, you really had to squeeze the trigger. So it just, it was just unbelievable that somebody could like somehow be moving it and shoot the gun, you know? Yeah. So as compelling as the forensic evidence was, and it is, the evidence that made everyone gasp was testimony from Russ Steger himself. What? Uh Uh-huh. A few months before trial, a young student named Frederick Evans, who had been coached by Russ in football and basketball, was cleaning the locker room when he discovered a mini cassette tape under one of the stalls of the bleachers. So Frederick knew that his mother had a mini cassette tape player. So he brought it home, but unfortunately the player was out of batteries. So he kind of forgot about it. And several weeks later, his brother actually was like, hey, let's get some batteries and let's see what's on that tape. And thank goodness that he did because he listened to this tape only a couple weeks before trial. And what he heard was his beloved coach's voice with a very dire warning. Yes. So he he literally got on his bike with his brother and went to his mom's work. And he was like, mom, you have to listen to this. And the moment she heard Russ's voice on the tape and the content of what he said, she was like, oh yeah, we are going straight to the police with this. And she turned it in that very day. And thank goodness, I mean, imagine if they had left it for months and months later and the trial had concluded, you know? Wow, that's crazy. Yep. So to ensure authenticity, an SBI crime lab audio and video technician testified that the tape showed no tampering. The voice part of the tape was about nine minutes. The whole tape was 30 minutes. And the judge allowed the entire nine minute portion of his voice to be played. So are you ready? This is what he said on the tape. The last few nights during sleep, Barbara has woke me up to give me some kind of medication. I have not taken it. Last night, she woke me up and gave me what she said was two aspirin, but this was like 4.30 in the morning. She stood there to see if I took it. I did not take it. I placed it under the bed. She went back to check and make sure I had taken it, saying she wanted something to drink from what I was drinking. This morning, she normally is up and gone by 7. Today at 7, she was still in bed. 
She said that she was going to go to work at eight. Before I got up, she was over around there on the side and she acts like she's looking for what I supposedly took last night. Now, this was the night of January the 28th, a Thursday night. So she stayed there looking to see if I had taken the stuff in the morning. I got it out of there, although she was looking very close to see if I was trying to retrieve it. She made the comment that you didn't take that, those aspirins I gave you. I said, yeah, I did. Well, I took the two capsules to Eckert's Pharmacy at Forest Hills, and they said it was sleeping pills. Now, if I was already asleep at 4.30 in the morning, why would somebody wake me up to give me two sleeping pills? So Russ then goes on to explain that he suspected that Barbara was tampering with their mail to hide or destroy bills in an effort to hide her spending from him. He outlines catching her at the car wash with another man. Russ also described policemen coming to their home to serve warrants for outstanding loans. He explained the money that she had accepted from the radio station without doing the work, which he had had to pay off. Russ also said on the tape that he suspected Barbara had embezzled from her bank job because later when he tried to secure a loan, they had denied it based on his marriage to Barbara. There were more instances of deceit, particularly around money and men. And then Russ chillingly questioned what had really happened to Larry and what could potentially happen to him. Wow. Mm-hmm. Barbara's second husband. The first one, I mean, I don't know what happened, but according to his parents, there was some sort of foul play going on. He supposedly accidentally shot himself in their bedroom with a pistol. Now, I have no idea what really happened. She was there when it happened, and so were the boys. My question is, did her husband, Larry Ford, accidentally shoot himself? And then at this point, there was like a break in the tape. It sounds like he had rewound something. So it breaks into his next sentence. And he says, I'm, I'm just being paranoid about all this stuff. Sometimes I wonder. Back to Wednesday night, January the 27th, Barbara had given me something that was supposedly for sinuses and some aspirin that supposedly was Nuprin. And about uh, five in the morning, I woke up and I was feeling terrible. I was hurting really bad around my eyes, under my eyes, my temple. And I really wonder if what she gave me was sinus medicine and Nuprin. I also had a real bad case of cotton mouth. Even after all of this, when she woke me up and saw that I was in pain, she actually tried to give me some more stuff, which I wouldn't take. I really hope that I'm just being paranoid about all this stuff, but I really wonder. Another quick break. This is uh, Russ Steger. Uh, this is January 29th, 1988. Ten minutes of two. Three days later, Russ Steger would be dead with a bullet in his head. Wait, that is so chilling. It's just so emotional, too, for the jury to hear this voice of this man that's been described to them and so emotional for his family to hear his voice again when they didn't expect it and so valiantly trying to make sense of his situation and ultimately helping to convict his murderer. Oh, my God. So what happens to this bitch? So the defense very weakly tries to argue that the voice is not actually Russ's. Their whole thing is that this was a planted tape that some actor was speaking on to essentially frame Barbara, which is ludicrous. Like everyone testifies that that is absolutely Russ's voice. I mean, his parents, his ex-wife, his colleagues, his students, his best friends, every single person gets on that stand and says, no, that's absolutely Russ's voice. And of course, Barbara's supporters, namely her parents and her sons say, no, it's not. So it's, 
you know, a, a they said, they said, but I would say that the people who knew Russ the best were all the ones saying, yes, that's absolutely him. Okay. So, yeah, so they didn't really have much of a case. They tried to say that both of the instances were accidents. This tape was something to frame Barbara. And then they had character witnesses come up and say like, oh, she's just a lovely woman and a nice Christian. But the jury was certainly not buying that because after only 44 minutes of deliberation, they declared Barbara Steger guilty of first degree murder. Shit. Yeah. And sentencing would actually take a lot more consideration because this was a death penalty case, potentially. In North Carolina, if you are convicted of murder for money, you can be eligible for the death penalty. So apparently this jury had a very, very rough time deciding between the death penalty and life in prison. And they said that there was lots of praying, there was crying. It was just this like emotional journey for these people. But they ultimately recommended the punishment of death. Whoa. No wonder there was a lot of praying. A lot of praying and a lot of crying. I wouldn't want to do that. I wouldn't want to be on a jury like that is potentially put sending somebody to their death, you know? That's a lot of responsibility. Yeah, that's a lot of pressure. I don't think any human should have that responsibility. That's the whole point of our show is that you don't get to decide to kill someone, you know? Yeah. (laughs) But don't worry about Barbara, guys. She's going to be just fine. In North Carolina, all death penalty cases are immediately appealed. And that happened in Barbara's case as well. So it would take two years for the North Carolina Supreme Court to hear her appeal. But eventually she was granted a new sentencing hearing. The successful appeal claimed that the judge's instructions on mitigating factors had been unclear to the original jurors. So while Barb wasn't getting a whole new trial like she had hoped, a new jury would hear the evidence to determine her fate around sentencing. And also the new jury was going to be pulled from Chapel Hill, which was a more liberal area of North Carolina, probably due to the school there. And so they were kind of excited about that because more liberal juries tend to not convict for the death penalty. Yeah. Yeah. So after hearing the evidence and impact statements from Larry and Russ's loved ones, the initial vote was eight to four still for the death penalty. Wow. I know people do not like Barb. But after several hours, the minority who wanted life in prison rather than the death sentence eventually flip-flopped. So they changed. They got the, they kind of convinced everyone there's a 12 angry man situation here. And I guess one of the jurors was like, I will never vote for the death penalty. We can sit here for hours, weeks, days. I'm going to keep fighting until y'all change your mind, you know? Yep. So she was ultimately resentenced to life in prison. Still, many of the jurors had reservations about the new sentence, which did carry with it the possibility of parole. One female juror said that she believed that if Barbara was released, she would kill again. Yep. I would. I think so, too. I mean, yeah, she's two for two husbands. I mean, at least don't get married to her. (laughs) The very least don't get married to her. Barbara's life sentence began on August 31st, 1993, on what would have been Larry Ford's 45th birthday. She became eligible for parole in 2005, but it was denied. All subsequent parole hearings in 2009, 2012, 2015, and 2018 have also been denied. Great. Good. Keep her in. Yeah. Keep her in. 
I think that she deserves to have a life sentence for the lives she took away. So as of the latest information I could find, Barbara is currently 72 years old and she remains behind bars at the North Carolina Correctional Institute for Women. So that is the story of Black Widow Barb <laughs> and the witness from beyond the grave. Thanks, guys. Alliteration. So yeah, thanks so much for listening. And if you like this story, please, please, please leave us a nice review, rate, and we'll keep churning out some good love murdery content for you. Yeah, thank you for the ones recently. They've been awesome. Yeah, you guys are the best. <laughs> In conclusion... I think that a little bit of financial budgeting would go a long way in not needing to murder your husbands for money. Yeah, I mean, there's that. And then there's also maybe not shagging some random child across the street from the car wash that your <laughs> yeah, husband's getting the that. car washed at for your grandmother's funeral procession. Maybe. Oh, man. Yeah, just don't, in general, try to get a, get some strange on the morning of your grandmother's funeral in a car park. It's not a good look. No. And as always, trust your gut when it comes to love so no one gets accidentally shot. Love you guys. Thank you so much for listening. Bye. Bye. <laughs>